Okay. Welcome to another week of Nothing to Fear, and welcome to another year of Nothing to Fear, as we are in January 2021. We have had our New Year's, and we're back. We're back for another episode, we're back for another movie, and we're back to talk about all the dumb shit that we talk about that you come to expect from 2020, Nothing to Fear. My name is Billy Schultz, I am your host, and I am joined, as always, by my two good friends, Luke Mason and Alex Wan. How are you, Luke? I'm excited to join the podcast, Nothing to Year. Woo! No time, no time, no time! Happy New Year, Luke. Happy New Year. And Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Happy New Year to the two of you, and I'm ready as well. Steve Holt! (laughs) Steve Holtz. That will not be the last Arrested Development reference this year. (laughs) But it might be the first. Yes. For those of you who are brand new listeners to the show, and I can't imagine why you would be after listening to that intro, we talk about a horror movie each and every week, going into great detail about the ins and outs, the plots, the characters, the revelations, and our thoughts around it. Uh, That's the show. How about the Deuteronomies? Deuteronomies? Sure. Yep. The numbers, the Corinthians. Leviticus it alone. Uh, It's time for that joke to make an exodus. Hey, I did it. Hey, let's do it. There we go. Good, good, good. Lots of Bible content here. We we love it. We love it on Nothing to Fear. This is a Christian podcast after all. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Have you heard about Jesus? (laughs) <laughs> That's a, if you listen to last week's episode on Get Out, you will understand that reference. But this week and this month for Nothing to Fear, we are going to be talking about movies that came out in the years that we were born. So each week... So if you are a dis, like a really, really good listener and you're able to you know do a little bit of ass using, you could probably figure out how old each of us are. Probably could. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're each gonna take we're each gonna take a week, but we wanted to give this first week to our friend Mark, whose birthday is also in January. I believe it is chronologically the earliest of all four of us too, like not year-wise, but date-wise. So we are gonna be watching Pet Cemetery, which is a based on the Stephen King novel of the same name, I believe, or possibly not. That is really all I know about this movie. I have no idea about Pet Cemetery for my own personal life. I am expecting there to be something vaguely supernatural, but the bigger scare and the bigger thrill, as with other Stephen King properties, will be people in general. Uh, Luke, what do you know about Pet Cemetery? Stephen King novel into movie adaptation. And then there was like a recent one from like last year or two years ago, I think. Yes. Let's let's make a note that this is the 1989 Pet Cemetery oh, and not right. the 2019 one. Our friend Mark is not barely two. He is True. born in 1989. <laughs> yes. So that's, listeners, that was one of your very subtle clues to figure out what year people were born in. I hope you're paying attention. So what uh, what I know, so I've never seen this movie. I'm actually, I'm excited to see it. My, my most, mm, I guess, intimate reference with this movie is that there's a South Park episode where they riff on it a little bit. And it's uh, Butters is kept in the basement by his parents. And I think that there's some parallel because there's the guy who shows up to Butter's parents' house is like, sometimes dead is better. And I know that that's from Pet Cemetery, So I'm excited oh, okay. to see that. But yeah, my, the, I know most about Pet Cemetery through South Park. Oh, cool. Have you read the book? No. 
No, I haven't read the book. What about you, Alec? What's your experience with this little piece of film? I know it's a Stephen King book that got adapted into a movie, (laughs) and that's pretty much it. I know the South Park episode that Luke is referring to, and there's a band I like, and their name is Pet Symmetry, which Ah. I know is is a play on words from the book, Pet Cemetery. And I do know that cemetery is not spelt how we normally spell like a graveyard cemetery. This one is spelled with an S. Yeah, it's spelled wrong mm-hmm. on purpose. I'm excited to watch this one. I'm excited to see another Stephen King entry. I think that's probably really it for what I know about this film. I am expecting, as with most of these films, that I will not be scared throughout the film's runtime, but there will probably be some good jumpy scares And a lot of stuff to talk about, especially the human condition and the evil that is other people, which can't wait to get into it. I wonder if there's going to be an absence of parents in this one or adult figures. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. Is this set in Maine? Who knows? Who knows? Probably. These are just Stephen King things, right? I know that it's like pets come back to life. They're like reanimated and they're weird, so... Yeah, like I think the premise is, yeah, uh, pets buried in that cemetery don't come back. Or do come back, and then I, I, I think that they try it with a person. Oh, and then a kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's get into it. Before we do, though, this is your friendly reminder, dear listener, that there will be spoilers from pretty much this point onwards after the trailer. Nothing is safe, except daytime. Daytime is safety. And we hmm. encourage you all, if you are worried about any triggers, to go check out the website doesthedogdie.com to see if any of the triggers or any like that it's a website that shows potential triggers in movies and especially horror movies and i'm also guessing that there is a dog that dies it comes back to life maybe there's a it's a pet cemetery (laughs) so the likelihood of a dog dying is pretty high but we will see you on the other side of the trailer when we talk about this movie at the edge of the woods behind the creed's new house is the old animal graveyard, the place where devoted pets are laid to rest. Daddy, is church all right? What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him. Why, Judd? I had more reasons. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a secret. But some don't stay. May the Lord bless you and keep you. No! May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of, Lois. Daddy's gonna do something really bad. That's why no one ever buried a human being out there. You're thinking of putting them up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. And why nothing ever rests in peace. If it doesn't work, I'll just put him back to sleep. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Take it away, Alex. Pet Cemetery, sometimes referred to as Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, is a 1989 American supernatural horror film and the first adaptation of Stephen King's 1983 novel of the same name. The title is a sensational spelling of Pet Cemetery. Sensational being incorrect. <laughs> yes. Or, or, like, really cool and amazing. I guess, yeah, I guess it could be that. <laughs> it's like saying fantastic for unbelievable. Exactly. Before we get talking about the uh, actual movie, folks, I just wanted to 
do an extra little trigger warning right at the very top. There is a scene in which this movie and quite a lot of the plot revolves around the death of their the Creed's young son, Gage. And so just so you're aware that we will be talking about that, it's a pretty gross scene when it comes out. We are going to be talking about that scene where there is a vehicle accident. And yeah, it's a pretty important plot piece, but just want people to be aware that that happens. So if you need to skip this episode because child death is a real bummer, of course it is, then we understand. (laughs) We totally understand. You know what? Here on the Nothing to Fear podcast, we are 100% children staying alive, and we don't care who knows. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what did we what did we think about this very strange movie from the late 80s, almost so close to the 90s? How did we feel about this one? Luke, why don't you kick us off? I think this was definitely not, again, the worst movie we've done, but I would say for me personally, it was the most boring. I found myself looking at my phone and being distracted more in this film than in any other. And maybe that would have been the case, too, with some of them we watched together. I'm not totally sure. Like, I don't know how exactly to compare that. I'm sure there were some movies that I would have been like that, too, if it wasn't the three of us together in the same room. But I found this one, the, the movie that it reminded me of most, and aesthetically, was actually Poltergeist, just kind of the lights and, I guess, the time, you know, the 80s type. But at least Poltergeist had, I don't know, there was just something more about Poltergeist in this movie. And, and the weird thing is, like, I don't actually think that this is a terrible story. I just think that this was a boring movie. So a bigger theory I have about this is that I actually think I never read the book Pet Cemetery, but I think it probably is a better book than it was as a movie. And I think probably that's because Hollywood, when they make their movies, they're like, accentuate the child death, accentuate the redemption, accentuate the horror. And I bet you there was just a lot more of the lore in, and, and themes of all of this in the book. That Because I, I don't know, I'm just guessing because Stephen King is quite a thematic and character-driven writer. So I have a hard time believing... The book Pet Cemetery is as much A to B to C as the movie is, but as far as the movie goes, I just found it pretty underwhelming, but also, like, I didn't think it was, like, it didn't revile me like some of the movies have that I don't like. I just was like, uh, this is kind of boring, although I did love Fred Gwynn, Judd Crandall. I thought he was awesome. But otherwise, I was like, "Eh, I don't really care what's happening right now. I do want to talk about Fred Gwynn after. But uh, yes, I I love the spooky old Mainer accent that he had the whole time. But Alex, how did you find Pet Cemetery to be? Yeah, I also thought it was kind of slow and boring as well. (laughs) It's kind of a it's tough for me because I think the story was cool. And I think it's. A story with quite a lot of deep themes and a lot to talk about with those themes but it was just really slow and there were some yeah there were some parts where it kind of just dragged on where at 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 certain points of the movie i knew what was going to happen and i just wanted them to speed it up because that like that's what's exciting to me is i want to see the actual meat and potatoes of the movie but there was just there's too much too many string beans in this movie you know (laughs) and yeah it it, like you know string beans are good for digestion i guess but sometimes i don't want to digest i just want to i just want to like pass out with a big meal i don't know (laughs) is that is that a good analogy i don't know like it was a fine movie but it's not great it was a little boring but i think there's a lot to talk about in terms of the characters and the themes it was about 20 minutes too long yes i agree with that sentiment for sure and i i agree with you alex there is a lot to talk about in this movie that i found 
to be very compelling. But I, I, my, you know, hesitation in qualifying this as a good movie was around the fact that the plot didn't seem to make too much sense. It seemed like it was maybe, you know, there was, there was stuff that was added or left in the movie that maybe had been partially cut from the screenplay or, or partially cut from like the novel adaptation and they just sort of left it in and it was just really strange. And again, the whole the whole thing about the buy-in of this pet cemetery is a complete lack of any rational thinking where, you know, Judd Crandall, the, the spooky neighbor, is like, hey, there's this spooky graveyard that, you know, will bring pets back to life, but don't use it. And I shouldn't have told you about it. Oops, I shouldn't have talked about it. It's like, well, then just shut up, Jed, and there'd be no movie <laughs> the whole time. So the fact that this was a treasure trove of tropes and horror movie, like, staples, especially Stephen King staples, I was really enjoying that. And overall... You know, I liked the cameos. I liked, I think my favorite character was the character of Pascal, who <laughs> once he became in the picture, I was just like, every time I, I saw him, I was like, this guy's a buddy. I really like you, Pascal. Put a hat on, maybe you can hang out, but just cover that up. Do, do you think Pascal's brain was hanging out? I think so. Yeah, okay. I think it was, it was very startling, but... He was hanging out. Well, he was hanging out. <laughs> he was just... He was hanging brain in a whole different uh, term that we don't usually use that expression. He was like the only humor in the movie, even. He was the only humor, and he was the only, like, you know, <laughs> he tried. He tried his little ghosty hardest, and he he just wasn't, I guess, able to affect any change because humans don't listen to the dead. But... We're getting, uh, we're already getting off on a tangent. We're already following a little rock-lined path into a cemetery, but... Watch where you're going! Watch <laughs> where you're going! Don't stop. <gasps> Don't look down. But, yeah, I, I think we should go sort of through the plot, but I have to. I have to talk about Fred Gwynn. And do either of you know Fred Gwynn's, like, big claim to fame? The thing I recognized him from, or I looked him up and I was like, oh, that's what he's from? Is he from Naked Gun? No. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Luke, do you know? I would have guessed this movie. Hmm. So are either of you familiar with the old TV show, The Munsters? Are you familiarity with that name at all? Yeah. Luke, you're nodding. He was Herman Munster. He was the dad. He played the Frankenstein's monster character. And so he was a big, you know, big, goofy, lovable freak. You know, he was very tall, very imposing. And when I saw him, I was like, oh, this guy was in The Munsters, which is a very old TV show that I think my mom watched when she was growing up. But that's where... That's where he was from. And I just, as weird as he was, I just loved the spooky old guy, like the spooky old guy neighbor who's just like, uh, yeah, well, that's what they've been saying for all these years. Like he was just such a stereotype. And I was like, Jed, you rock. <laughs> yeah, his his accent, I think, is the most memorable part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the joke of, you know, the the spooky old guy who's like, why, there hasn't been anything up here for 25 years. Like, that's just him all over. <laughs> and it does make me appreciate that episode of South Park all the more because they really, the the they ha there's an episode, and I think it's even Butter's own episode, where it's a pet cemetery inspired. Butter's parents think he's dead and then they want to reanimate him kind of thing. And then there's this old one who comes in sometimes dead is better you know just the, the perfect the perfect line and 
when I was watching that South Park, I was like, oh, this is South Park being South Park, and they're just like accentuating a, a funny little quirk of someone's personality for this human. No, it's like almost the exact same. <laughs> it really is like, yeah. it's like Fred Gwynn is parodying himself as, in that role. So it was really funny. Yeah, if I saw Judd on TV and he was trying to sell me like, you know, some brand of popcorn or, uh, you know, <laughs> butter made in the good old days, like I would have bought it. He's got that kind of charming voice that makes me want to buy something from 50 years ago. Do either <laughs> do either of you know the American breakfast restaurant Cracker Barrel? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know of it, but I've never been to it. It's like, you know, it's like this yeah. <laughs> kind of old-timey, you know, 1920s farm feel, like churn your own butter. All of the stuff on the farm is handmade and it's usually made out of wood and really old-looking metal. And so like this is the aesthetic of this Cracker Barrel and I can just imagine Fred Gwynn being the kind of like spokesperson for it on commercial be like, "All right, now, come on down here to Cracker Barrel." <laughs> Yeah, you know, just like he's he's their mascot or something. It was just the vibe I would get from him. Exactly. I also really liked. Well, I didn't end up really liking her character, but when Rachel was revealed to be Denise Crosby, I was very very happy because she played a character called Tasha Yar on Star Trek: The Next Generation. And so, I, because I'm a big Star Trek nerd, I was like, oh my God, that's Tasha Yar. I, I recognize her. She's, she, you know, she's got the same haircut. Mm. She's acting the same way, but just, you know, 300 years in the past compared to when the, you know, the next generation takes place. So it's just, the only thing else I've seen her in was she played a spooky, like, lady at one of the the fake sanctuaries in The Walking Dead. She was, she was in that show in, like, season three or four. I don't know if... Either you saw that one, but it was just it was just neat to see a little Star Trek alumni showing up in the in the late '80s, which would have been right around the same time she left she left Star Trek because she wanted to make it big as an actor, and then I guess she did this movie. <laughs> yeah, her uh, her look reminded me a lot of a '90s mom. Yeah, like no nonsense power suit. She's a working mom. She's got good good pant suits. Is she gonna ask for and... the manager? <laughs> I don't think she was a Karen. <laughs> yeah, short haircut to demonstrate. That there's no nonsense here. No nonsense. But also, having talked to lots and lots of moms who have, like, kids under the age of one or two, apparently babies grabbing hair is, like, real awful. So I get it. I get it, moms, why you go for the short mom haircut. You don't want that baby grabbing your hair. So why don't we why don't we take why don't we kind of take a walk through this plot? Because the, the film opens up with this family moving from Chicago to Maine, where the dad is be is gonna be a doctor at the university or the hospital or something and they're moving into this big old house and they have a weirdo old guy neighbor who's very friendly and chatty and a road that turns out to be like populated entirely by speeding semi-trailers wow this stephen king story set in maine i'm really shocked actually i think the semi the the road and the semis made me remember some probably I, I would say like like cinematically probably my least favorite part about this movie which is the editing i i just don't like movies that edit things in a way that become really 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 unrealistic and obviously semis can speed and obviously there can be distracted drivers but like in any real life sense there's going to be signs about children playing or slow down or be careful. And 
I've driven very I've driven lots of vehicles before, including big ones. Like just because you're in a big vehicle doesn't mean you can't see a hundred feet in front of you and to the side. Like it just doesn't mean you can't. And so like just the editing of this movie, and it's not just the semi-scenes, but I think it's the most obvious in the semi-scenes where it's like all of a sudden we're in an action movie. It's just like it's like there's no way of even comprehending what like these semis are in one second like half a mile closer all of a sudden and it's just like it's it it, all of the unrealism of the editing and especially around the semis made me feel kind of like manipulated as an audience member i i I think the editing that's that's a that's a cinematic critique i'd make this movie is that the editing made me realize they were manipulating my feelings as opposed to more subtly manipulating my feelings through good story (laughs) and so yeah i just and i think that the that's what i noticed the most with the semis in that road is like obviously slow down and obviously drivers can see like accidents happen but drivers can see more than two feet in front of them if music is playing so yeah. yeah and my sort of thing that bumped me really a lot with the semis and the driving scenes is i was just like is this a time before there were like speed regulations were there no speed limits in maine in the late 80s to early 90s because when i you know i was about the same age as i guess ellie in the movie you know i think she's she's maybe a couple years older than i would have been i would have been four in 89 and so like i remember living there being playground zones and there being residential areas and different speed limits. And I wonder if it was just, if this movie had been set in the sixties and there was like speeding traffic and cars and stuff, I would buy that a little more because it seemed like it was a li- there was a little bit less regulation, but it seemed like by the, ni- the late eighties to the nineties, there should have been a little bit more. There should have been a different, you know, speed zone. And I just, I can't buy the fact that, you're right like a semi-trailer driver is just like well i'm just gonna drive really fast by these houses and to hell with however many animals or people are in the road it's just everyone takes it as like wrote that like oh yeah stuff gets hit on this road all the time because the truck drivers just don't care it's like i mean maybe there are callous people in the world like that yeah and also like why is a semi route on this two-lane back roads highway why is that the best route for the semis to take yes Exactly. Why? Yeah. Why are they there? Is there no highway system in Maine? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I confess, I don't know much about the landscape of Maine. Maybe there are just like really underdeveloped roads all over the place. But there's, I guess, also a world class sized oil refinery that has trucks going every single hour of every single day, 24 seven. But anyway, that's all plot dressing, because we have to get to a point where animals and people are getting hit on this road and so the first one we see is we see pasco we see victor pasco the jogger or the the i think he's like a student maybe and that is one of the very first most startling scenes when they just show him with his brain out and they're bringing him into the hospital i i was really affected by that one and that kind of surprised me with the gore what about what about you two yeah, it was uh, during cut because I don't know if it was edited this way on purpose, but like I, I think if I remember correctly, the scene right before they show 
him being carried into the hospital, or at least to where Lewis works, was a scene of Rachel holding Gage and them saying I love you to their to to, to Lewis or something. Like a very sweet family scene, and then just an mm-hmm. abrupt cut to like a bunch of pe- panicked people carrying him in. And it's just like, it's super, super gory and just like very shocking because you're not built up to that moment yet. The entire film up to that point is just like, oh, there's a close call with the truck with Gage, but like, it's still like, it's sunny. It's a beautiful family that has just moved in. They got cute kids. They seem to be a nice, close knit family and very loving of each other. And then bam, it's just blood and gore is wow. (laughs) Like what a transition. And I didn't know how I felt about it. I don't know if I liked it or disliked it, but it was just, it was very jarring to see. And, but it also, I don't know, it, it felt kind of out of place in the movie. Like this whole movie's pacing was just weird to me. Cause like you have those kinds of quick edits where if it was on purpose and done to shock the audience, then they definitely made it like happen. But then there were also like transitional cuts in storytelling that just felt very abrupt, but didn't feel like they fit in. So I don't know what this mm-hmm. movie was on about, but yeah, when you first see Victor Pascal with his brain out, very, very shocking. I agree, Alex, about the the cuts and the, the different plot points in this movie. There was points where I was like, did they just intercut something else in here? Like there's a whole scene with their housekeeper who's this like spooky old lady who's cranky. And then for basically no setup, there's just a scene where she has hanged herself and written a suicide note and that plot point just kind of resolves. There's a weird side plot with Rachel and her family and her like weird trauma that just sort of comes in unannounced and leaves just as abruptly. And just like, I didn't quite understand what those parts were doing in the movie, but as we get to our, to circle back to the like entrance of Pascal, uh, what did you feel about that sort of part of the movie, Luke? Yeah. I mean, it was jarring and it was different from everything we'd seen before, but I think I was already a little bit off put by the editing. <laughs> this is probably something I'm going to return to because I think it's one of the most overt parts of the film. So, I guess like technically, I don't like editing that really manipulates and messes with like your sense of space, like how far away something is versus how close it gets. Just like proximity editing I think is really important and the best movies don't edit their films in such a way that it just makes the audience member jump. 50 feet away without like kind of contextualizing it a bit better and i just think that this this the editing in this movie was just like gauges right here all of a sudden he's 100 feet away in less than a second so anyway that's neither here nor there like so the the, the jump editing Ca- counterpoint mm. counterpoint monty python and the holy grail <laughs> yes yeah. but i think well this movie isn't intended as a silly comedy or if it is then it suffers on a different front. I don't, I don't think Monty Python was a silly comedy. It was a historic epic is what it okay. was. Well, it could be both. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. So like by the time the bloody head shows up, I'm like, oh, that's gross. But then I'm like, oh, that's also 1980s prosthetics. Like I can tell that it's fake. And then I liked Pasco. Like I think actually he was the funniest character in the movie. And he was like, I don't even know. He was like Loki, but a bit meaner. Like it felt like he was like going to warn everyone, but then kind of enjoyed when they messed up, <laughs> you know, or like didn't really want them to succeed. He just kind of wanted them to struggle and then still lose. Like I didn't really understand Pasco's motivation. 
But I think the subplot of Pasco and Rachel's family and Missy and that Tim guy that the story that Judd tells them and, and like a couple other things, maybe even the lore of the graveyard itself and the Native American aspect to it. Like those are all things that make me think the book is better than this movie because those all felt like things that were in the book. The Hollywood producers were like, well, they are in the books. we got to ham fist them in the movie somehow. But really, we just want to make a movie about a killer baby. And that because that will get us audiences. And so that that was like all of those things I were, were the clues to me. I'm like, mm, I bet you this is fleshed out better in the book. I would I would maybe wonder if that was true, though, because I know there was a phase in Stephen King's life when he was like mad into cocaine and writing crazy shit all over the place. And if, you know, this kind of, this movie kind of read like a book that had a ton of extra stuff and he was just, because he was just like, oh, and then there's a a face that's in the lake that comes out and scares him. And then there's a a burial ground and then church is dead and then he's alive. And then there's his second cemetery. And then like, just like adding, 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 and never really closing the door on anything. Like, I mean, we talked about his his endings that was sort of parodied mm. in it chapter two with bill and not being able to write a good ending to a book. Right. We criticized Stephen King of this, the the greatest author, you know, of our generation, arguably. And we were like, Hey, write a better ending. Dickhead. <laughs> like, <laughs> Maybe in this instance, write a better book. <laughs> maybe write a better book. <laughs> well, like if that's true and, and like, I don't know, I don't know because maybe this book isn't very good, but if it's true that this is a bad book and it's just a cocaine-fueled fever dream, good on Stephen King for getting them to make a Hollywood movie out of his shitty book then. Like, that's that's something pretty impressive in itself, if that's the case. Fair not, enough. Not just one, but three. Whoa. Yeah, this thing's been remade tons of times. So we, we, we find, when they move in, Ellie finds the pathway that leads down to the pet cemetery, which Judd started in 1924. And, you know, then, then we get a lot of scenes with ellie asking her dad about you know do people die do pets die will church die right and she's having all these questions that kids are asking around the time of ellie's age and you know there's some interesting family drama there where he's trying to like tell her enough but she's still trying to kind of shield her from the reality of life and death her mom doesn't want her to be you know party to knowing all these things right away like there's some tension in that couple and then when they go away to thanksgiving then we find out that church has in fact been struck by a truck and killed and jed takes them to the secondary cemetery the place where the dead walk not just the place where the dead speak which is what both he and Pasco, the ghost, said of the pet cemetery, this is the place where the dead speak, but don't go down that pathway because mm. that's where the dead walk. And you don't go that way. And then the next day, <laughs> Judd is like, let's go this way. Okay, <laughs> sure. Previously, we'd only ever been to the Kakariko Village graveyard, but on this day, Judd takes us to the Shadow Temple. <laughs> nice. That's a relevant reference because Rachel's sister's also in in that game. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Which yeah. also, little little teaser, has something to do with my something to cheer later on down the track. So Wow, we're just spoiling everything here, huh? Just you gotta listen the whole way through, listeners. You can't just stop at the end of the episode. It's gold all the way to the finish. So this was the first part of the movie that I quite liked was Judd and his reasoning for wanting to show lewis the burial ground past the pet cemetery in order to revive Mm. church so i thought it was really interesting 
in the opening of the movie where Judd brings the whole family to the pet cemetery and he's like showing showing Ellie around and like introducing the concept of death to her where you know Rachel doesn't want her to hear and then I think Judd is aware is socially aware enough where he's like oh like obviously this mother doesn't want the innocence of her daughter to be you know taken away this early so I'm gonna rephrase what I'm gonna say and he, he he does I thought he did a kind of a nice job in like talking to a child about death it was like you know like this is this is a good place where memories are and where mm, you know yeah that the headstones speak right and this is where you know the animals can rest and all that stuff and you know like all the all the nice all the hall, hallmark card things that you would say to a child about death and then I think he he probably felt quite guilty that church was hit by a car or truck and died and you know based off of that first interaction and based off of his own life experience of his own pet dying he i think he told lewis that he didn't ellie's probably not ready to deal with a pet's death quite yet which is why he brings lewis to the the burial ground to revive church and i thought that was like an interesting theme of like wanting to shelter a child from reality because they're not ready for it yeah, I will agree with you up until the up until a certain point because Judd has the knowledge of what happened when he brought back his dog. He's like, my dog came back and it was mean and weird and smelled bad and different. And also he knows that they brought back Timmy Baderman from the war. He has that knowledge already. We don't find out about it till later, but he is operating, you know, under a zero out of two times where somebody has been brought back and they've been fine. And he's like, but maybe, maybe we'll try it with the cat. Like, and we'll see. And I guess we'll just, we'll which, just uh, kind of give it a go. Which is mirrored so, well with Lewis. <laughs> Lewis yes, is like, so- no, this time it'll work. Cause it's fresh. <laughs> Billy, I will invite you to see your previous comment. This isn't very uh, rational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Invitation, invitation accepted. But just like the fact that I was like, okay, Judd, you know, and again, it's like they need, he needs to say it because of the plot, but I'm like, this is not what a human would, would say, you know, about this dead cat. And, and, you know, it's just people ignoring obvious like warnings. Lewis has had the visitation from the ghost Pasco, who's going to take him. He takes him to the pet cemetery and says, this is fine over here is bad and then immediately again with the cut like it's like then it's almost the next scene where so in my mind i'm like okay so this is the same morning when lewis learns this and is it it didn't seem like it had been a couple months or whatever or a couple weeks and then so judd's like well you know this didn't work when i was a kid but why don't we try this now we'll go to this burial ground that's right beyond it's just right after the pet cemetery he he makes it seem like it's just over a bunch of hedges and then it's a bunch it's atop a bunch of crumbly walls it's like past a quarry it's up a mountain and it's like judd you lied about how long this hike was gonna be (laughs) yeah i guess if i was gonna put a positive spin on it i think and i don't know if the movie meant to be this thoughtful or deep i imagine it wasn't but maybe if we're gonna cut judd some slack there it's kind of just like he's being the part of the human mind that isn't rational where I don't know, like haven't have, have either of you two ever just like done or said something that you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? And like even immediately after, you're like, I know I shouldn't have done that, or I know I shouldn't have said that. But it's like 
satisfying a different urge, I guess. So maybe Judd is like, yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> it's very dangerous, but it's been a long time. And Ellie is new in my life and she's kind of nice. And I feel bad for her because her cat. And, you know, like it's it has been about 60 plus years since my dog Spot. So maybe this time I can help Ellie. And you know what? All of those like rational things that you bring up, Billy, they're just not what's at the forefront of my mind. I just want to help this kid out, you know? And I don't know, like I, st- it, I don't think it makes sense still for Judd in the movie if it was as bad as the as Timmy got but I don't know I can I can understand the theme anyway of like hmm. doing something not totally rational because you just really want something else okay two things first off just to hit our reference is hi my name is Judd <laughs> Judd <laughs> and then kind of to go on your point Luke about not being rational I I sometimes think about this and I would I can't wait till I'm at that age where I don't have to give a fuck anymore. Like where where I'm so old where like nothing I do, like I don't care about what I do or say. So I, I, I feel like I could relate to what Judd was doing in this movie where he's like, obviously he's a compassionate human and he wants to befriend this family and he's kind to them. And he, he it, it, you can argue that he's taken a liking to Ellie and wants the best for her and like wants to like, keep her innocent safe but at the same time it's like that old age where you've seen so much you've gone through so much in life you've done your due share like you're and now you just do whatever the fuck you want and you say whatever you want and it doesn't even matter like i cannot wait till i can sit down on public transit and let out a large ass fart and people won't be like disgusted they'll just be like oh it's an old guy he can do that you know like i i i kind of relate to judd in that way and I feel like, I don't know, maybe that's an old person thing where you get to an age where you're just like, you know what? I probably shouldn't have said that, but I don't I don't care. I'll say it anyway. I've <laughs> earned the right to say that because I have fought through many wars and paid lots of taxes. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I like that take on it. Just all the all the points leading up to the, you know, leading up to the resurrection of church, which he brings... So Judd brings him up to this ancient Micmac burial ground that they used in some, you know, ill-defined ritual to make the dead walk. And the whole the, the thing that bumped me a lot was the whole time he's going up this mountain and going on this walk, he's telling things that are all huge red flags. He's like, you know, I was brought here and my dog didn't come back right. And, you know, I, I met this other stranger called the Ragman, who's just this like nothing and then after we do this we got to keep it a secret just the fact that he doesn't tell lewis that when church comes back he's gonna be wrong and he's gonna be meaner and he's gonna look weird and he's gonna like scratch you and he only tells him this information after the fact so once church comes back we see him like you know lewis talks to judd and has the you know the little conversation about like yeah he's different he's like oh yeah by the way my dog came back all different and smelled like grave dirt and i couldn't get him clean and and i had to put him down a second time and bury him in the normal cemetery and it just was like yeah rational or not like wanting to help ellie or not this is a huge piece of information you're withholding and letting lewis find out all on his own when it's too late to to do anything about it so i don't know if that changes your opinion at all but I, I agree with what you said, Luke, about like his his desire to 
protect Ellie, but it seems like the intentions were, I don't want her to deal with the death, but so I'll tell her about this thing and what results is even worse than death. Like it would have just been easier to have the conversation with Ellie. Like, hey, sometimes pets die. It sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think probably this movie would have made more sense if they dropped a few lines that Judd is battling dementia or something. I think that actually would have explained a lot of that way more. Maybe. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I don't think it was in the movie, and I don't know if it's in the book, but I just feel like him not being a totally reliable character would have made those points you're making a little bit more understandable. Mm, I agree. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. And at this point in the movie, we get another entrance of Missy, the wash the washer later who we've we've found that she's got some some persistent stomach pains and she's a bit grumpy about it but she won't go see a doctor and she eventually makes the decision to suicide by hanging because i think she's like i she writes a note that's all really badly uh, handwritten and she's like oh i i i can't go on hangs herself we get the funeral we get the stephen king cameo who's who's the priest officiating the the funeral and it's all the like setup for judd and lewis to talk about has a person ever been brought to the burial ground and that was again really strange and like seemed inorganic they're like here's this one character we're gonna have who's just who's whose entire story arc is to set up a future conversation which i found to be i don't know not the best not the easiest not not the best yeah i think it wasn't great but it was used to set up ellie to the fact that people die right right so like she's coming to terms with the concept of death in this movie i think that's a big theme is when children learn about death so when judd takes the family to the pet cemetery the first time she learns that you know animals can die and she has a fear of church dying and then later on it builds furthermore and a more loss of innocence in that you know missy missy died and then you know she realizes that humans can die too now so i think it's just like it's another way of building that layer to to ellie's character and her growth in childhood but and it, it, it's a cool thing to explore but it wasn't done well <laughs> Yes, that's a good way of putting it, Alex, is that there are a lot of really interesting themes and motifs and and feelings and thoughts in this movie, and all of them were executed very poorly. And I think that that's, you know, I just think this movie was poorly executed on almost every single front. And also, just to extend that point, Alex, like, if we're going to take this movie a little bit more seriously than I think it invites us to, when, like... (laughs) When, when a kid starts asking questions about death, do you also include the topic of suicide when you talk to kids about death, right? Like that's an additional layer of sadness and darkness and pain on top of just like the existential <laughs> fact of, you know, what dreams may come when we shuffle off this mortal coil, but also some people choosing to do that earlier than otherwise might be the case and i don't know like that that is harder and deeper and truer than any like sheepish parent or or polite society wants to 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 sweep under the rug like not talking about it or stigmatizing it or keeping it out of the limelight changes the changes reality not right Mm. and so i think even though missy was a weird character and it was abrupt like it wasn't it just felt gratuitous a little bit in the narrative to just have her she was only in like three scenes and then sorry i'm out it just still i think represented thematically very something very stephen king which is a really dark dark part of human nature which i think you know 
suicide mm-hmm. would be included in, and especially if you have to talk to a child about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the Stephen King themes and, and points that we're seeing, yeah, do, do kind of talk about stuff like that. And the loss of a child that a parent has to go through, which is coming up in the, the movie at this point, and, and learning about death, these are all things that I think Stephen King does well. And I, I can't say that I've read his stuff enough, but I feel like there's always a little bit around that. Like in Stand By Me, I think they find a dead body, right? And they have to, you know, that's like another confrontation of death that kids are dealing with in in a way that maybe don't have parents around. Well, the original novella that Stand By Me is based on is called The Body. So Right, of course. But the other sort of thing with the Stephen King of it that we're noticing is the parents inattention and so we have you know lewis is really busy at work all the time and and mom is dealing with her own stuff and then we see like a classic sort of inattentive parent scene that we're talking about in luke when they have the picnic when they go to the mountain and they're having the picnic and everyone's having a great time and they're all focused on this kite and they don't notice that gage has run out into the road until it's you know, way too late to stop anything. And I think this is the the editing scene that really bothered you, Luke, because they have like so many scenes of it cutting back to the truck and then cutting to the family and then cutting back to the truck, speeding down the highway and then cutting back to the family. And then again and again and again, just to like really hammer it home. And I was like, oh no, this is going to be the scene where Gage gets hit by the truck. And they just like, they draw it out for so long and there's so many times when they're all just like focused at the the picnic table or focused on the kite in the sky and Gage is off running along. And I was just like, oh, these are the parents that aren't paying close enough attention to their kid in a dangerous situation. And it's going to have bad results. Also, did you notice how unrealistic the unspooling of that kite's string was? Like it was like friction didn't even matter. Like it was just like spinning like a top complete like like a winch just boom zooming off but like if that were actually the case the friction of the string on the spool would have already made the spool move through the air like the wind if the wind is strong enough to do that to the kite that thing is not just sitting there it probably weighs like not even like a couple ounces i was like come on i've studied enough physics i've been alive enough to know (laughs) physics movie i don't know can we get any kite flying experts to weigh in yeah if you're a big kiter let us know if that is likely to have happened but that, that that scene as it was coming up for me was, even though I was like, oh no, I know it's going to happen. I know it's coming. I just, I like, I wanted it to be over. And it just, it really pulled that tension to its utter breaking point for me until I was just like, okay, like, can we get to it now? Like, I know what's going to happen. Just like, we got places to be. But what about, what about that scene? Was it effective to either of you? Yeah, it was, it was a horrible scene to watch. In like, I'll get to the actual cinematography in the movie part of it after but it was definitely probably this scene and missy committing suicide those two scenes were the hardest to watch in this movie it was just they're they're so visceral and such awful tragedies that i kind of felt like i don't wince a lot when i watch movies because i'm able to detach my brain from the fact that it is a movie and it's not real but the thing is these tragedies happen in real life probably on a daily basis and they're awful things that happen and to kind of see that being translated on the screen especially with how drawn out it was it was just like it was so it was really hard to watch and i felt Mm. really uncomfortable watching it it wasn't easy to watch for sure so yeah it, it did it did have a really big impact on me emotionally 
Now, the actual build-up to Gage getting hit by the truck sucked. It was just like, okay, we get it. You don't have to cut between, you know, Gage running, the kite going away, the family not looking at Gage, and the truck driver just driving. Like, you don't have to cut between those four things for, like, 40 seconds for me to understand that this is going to happen. And, yeah, it was... Like, I would say that besides the unexpected part, like, I knew that this was happening, but I, I found this the scene where Gage gets hit by the semi to be very comparable to when Charlie gets decapitated in Hereditary. Like, it's just, it's hard to watch, and it affected me a lot. Yes, it was very hard to watch, and I watched this movie on a, a Zoom call with my girlfriend. We watched it together, and it was... Yeah, it was just like we were both like covering our eyes and not not wanting to see it because it was just you're right, Alex. It was too much setup. It was too much setup to have it happen. And then after Gage dies, the movie just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Like we see the unraveling of Lewis, who's obviously distraught and distressed about his son's death, as anybody would be. And then we see his mom also relapsing into her her past trauma we see her family who is acting inappropriately at the funeral and it's just all it's all so much happening at the same time but but i, I want to get your thoughts on the 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 gauge scene luke aside from the kite friction which we know is not okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i'll i'll preface this by like this is this is a I mean, it's obviously a parent's worst nightmare. It's just kind of like a worst case scenario, right? Like a worst nightmare moment of a really terrible accident befalling a child. And I think the severity of the moment made me doubly dislike how they executed it. Like this is supposed to be probably the most serious part of the movie. And the background of it all is just so palpably unbelievable. Like the parents would not look at their two-year-old for that long not always be like I know people who have one two three-year-olds their eyes are never off that kid let alone for Mm -hmm. like two minutes when they're out in a field by a road that they already know has speeding semis okay so there's premise number one that's um totally unbelievable in this particular movie premise number two that semi drivers can't see 500 feet in front of them (laughs) in an open field to see a kid playing with a kite okay like sure accidents happen but there's like we're talking we're before phones right no one's looking at their phone (laughs) so he's sure he's listening to music we're supposed to i've listened to music lots i can still see several feet in front of me when there's something as unique and unlike the rest of the environment as a kid flying a kite and running right like it's just like our depth perception in our eyes were evolved for movement like this is like what we do to spot predators this is like the most basically encoded part of their lizard brain is to be able to see movement peripherally, right? Like, this is how we survive. So that was thing number two. <laughs> and then, like, well, maybe it's just two things. I don't know. I just, and, and then- Okay, and but, then the, but I mean, just to stop you there, like, you know, you you being, you paying a lot of attention while you're driving, is that just not testament to how great our driver's ed is nowadays? Where <laughs> before, I guess, anybody could just have a, a driver's license. <laughs> hey, the three of us are- very very qualified driver it's true all class four baby they could have easily massaged much of the natural environment to make this scene more believable and i think usually in art i'm like whatever 
you know, it's taste. You've made it. But this is a scene of a kid dying. Like, I don't know. I think I would have held, I hold these filmmakers to a higher standard for tastefully, but that doesn't even feel like the wrong, like that still seems like too soft of a term, like honorably making a death scene of a child. And I just thought that they made like mm, some yeah. Scooby, some Scooby-Doo wacko scene. And, and I just, it was so, the disjunct between the cinematography and the content was absurd to the point of, and this is not a word I like to use because I know it's overused, but it's absurd to the point of offensive. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what I thought about that scene. Yeah, I agree. And you're right. They could have massaged the truth. They could have had it be like a wooded road that, you know, there was low visibility or a foggy day or a nighttime or, you know, the the fact that it's like peak safety times, daytime, and, you know, the, the truck driver's not paying attention is just, yeah, it's a little bit, it's, it's obviously story serving, but it's serving it in a really ham-handed way. I agree with Alex. The visceral terror of it is great and the execution is so bad so bad that it makes it feel not great or like not impactful mm. as much as it should be when, when it rips you out like that of such an important i don't know something that i think you really need to be respectful about is you know yeah because yeah. there have been lots of real parents who've lost children to car accidents or being hit by a car these are real things that happen to people right like this this is stuff that happens and to just i don't know like to make it make it very slapsticky seems gross right just, yeah just yeah. icky very very yeah. icky the whole way through that scene i agree and i think we should not talk about it anymore i think we should move past it although i will say as a positive gage is a very 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 cute kid he might oh be the God. cutest kid we've had on this podcast yet to talk about. And I would be the same age, I think. <laughs> we mm. talked about our ages. I think I was that age in that time. So, <laughs> Are you saying you were as cute as Gage? I no, but I was a lot cuter <laughs> than I am now. <laughs> I, I've, seen, I've seen baby Luke pictures. Don't sell yourself yeah. short. But you're right. I liked, I liked how you know adorable he was. And I wonder if there was... You know, I, I was wondering if the dialogue was like actually captured by him or if it was ADR after or if it was, you know, because it seems like I've, I've heard anecdotally that it's really hard to work with both kids and animals. And they did both in this movie, you know, getting a cat to do what you want it to on a screen takes so long and have, you have to have so much patience and the same with little kids. And so I just, you know, gauge the he was he was stinking super cute. So adorable, even right up to the very end. Like he was just adorable uh, the whole way through, even the parts where he was being a weird murderer, which makes me want to talk of like, what do we think the brought back person is? Do we think it's like a weird zombie? Is it a weird, just like rage monster? Is it an angry spirit because they weren't allowed to pass pass over, you know, into the other side or like, what do we think the supernatural thing is in this movie, or does it matter at all? I guess it seemed inconsistent. Like, yeah, I'm once again, I'm sure someone who's been in the sunken place too long and they're pissed off. <laughs> we we say this all the time. I'm sure it was explained in the book. Yeah, because but, spirits. Yeah, but like this one, it was like Church was aggressive towards Lewis, but seemed fine around everybody else, and Church Church lived for pretty much the rest of the movie almost all the way up till the end but then 
you know, Judd's dog, when he came back, he said it died the next day. And then Timmy, who died in World War II, was brought back and he terrorized the town folk and, you know, was like his dad tried to keep him around. But then, you know, like he was weird, but he was able to talk. But he was also shown like eating a leg. Like, yeah. Just a, a human leg. So I was like, what? Yeah. And then like with Gage, he was talkative and, you know, tricksy, playful, but also murderous. I assume like I, it, just, it just seemed inconsistent. Like I didn't get it. Are they all it's... murderous, but some aren't? Are they like I don't know. I think I think the only sensible to, to way to talk about it is is that it's purely thematic, whereas the idea is and this is a this is like an old idea of like don't frivolously use deep old things that are meaningful in different contexts. So like mm, yeah. a, a Native American burial ground, this is a very sacred, meaningful spot. Oh, let's get our cat back. You know, like it's it's also like prioritizing your own small like I obviously losing a pet is is a is a painful experience, but like I would argue it's an important part of growth and understanding of the world. It's like, let's get a mulligan. We don't have to suffer for pain. My small problem will be solved at the expense of your great tradition and <laughs> yeah. just cheap like that. And I just think it's like, you know, well, no. It's uh if you misuse deep, important old things for your own benefit you're going to get reanimated fucks who eat legs, <laughs> you know, or, or you, you, you don't know what, you don't know what you're playing with. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're abusing. And because of that, you might get something really dangerous coming back towards you in yeah, one form or another. You're going to get like some karmic retribution. Yeah. Coming to get you. But I like that the scene where they talk about Timmy coming back and Judd tells the story about how like he had the town and then a bunch of us men folk had to get together and solve the problem. And it seemed like the first thing they tried was burning down the house. <laughs> like it didn't seem like they tried anything else. They're just like, okay, we got to take care of Timmy. We'll burn the house down. Like, let's do it. I got the gas right here. <laughs> Who do they think they are? The talking heads? <laughs> You know, David Byrne, come on. They're efficient. They get the job done. And no one will be alive to ask questions. I I mean, I guess so. But I was just like, okay, Judd, you're really not lending too much more credence to your case or your reliability if you're like, don't worry, I've dealt with this before. We burned everything down. And then I took care of the problem forever. It's like, Judd, did it? Did it really, Judd? I don't think so. So I was just like bumped again. I was bumped by that because it was like, why is everyone trusting Judd just because he's old and has like a kind of friendly sounding accent? Mm, maybe there's should be more criteria. This. Sorry. Go ahead, Luke. No, I was just going to agree with you. It was it was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, now that I think about it, the whole Judd character is the least comprehensible part of this movie. And yet also lewis and rachel are very incomprehensible as well so it's it's actually a, like it's a pretty stiff competition for least comprehensible <laughs> lead character in this film well allow me to add one more contender to the least comprehensibility because at this point in the movie we get some evidence that ellie the d dear ellie the small child has some sort of prophetic dreams where she mm. is also she's got espn as well i'm pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah so she's got these like visions and these dreams and i don't know maybe it's like another version of the shining you know the shine of the lamp of god that reveals things because stephen king has a bunch of characters who can see things prophetically and with ellie it just seemed like you know she was just this 
scared kid who who didn't really have any power, obviously. And she's just like, she had to go to her parents or her grandparents and, you know, live there. But just like the, the addition of her having dreams of, you know, knowing that, you know, she had a dream that Daddy buried Church and Church came back. She had a dream about uh, Gage and she's having dreams about this person she calls Pax Cow because she doesn't know about Pasco, the, the, the spirit helper. And, and it just like that whole part was so strange and again so incomprehensible because i was like oh this is going to come back ellie's going to be able to like save the day at the last minute oh, nope she's just an orphan now i guess spoiler for the end of the movie but just like again was this better developed in the book we never actually saw lewis get stabbed with that knife though so it's ambiguous <laughs> okay yeah fair <laughs> yeah he could have been screaming from pleasure <laughs> during his makeout session with his zombie wife or whatever yeah you know whatever you're into i'm gonna chalk that up again to i think this is much more thorough in a book form than in a movie form and and maybe i'll like i'll i'll just give my i was gonna do this at some point so i might as well do it here do it i think stephen king novels are made for television more than they are made for feature films because they're so big and they're so dense and they have such a interesting storyline that to cram it into two hours does a complete injustice to the source material. So in the last year and a half, I've watched both seasons of Castle Rock, which are like eight or 10 episodes each, and The Outsider, which is a mini, like an eight episode miniseries. And I see them as vastly superior to any movie adaptation I've seen of Stephen King, except maybe The Shining. The Shining is really good. But interestingly, that's one that, you know, Stephen King himself didn't think was a great adaptation of his work you know and so like the fact that hbo made an eight hour movie quote unquote of the outsider i think really helped it because it really goes into the grief of two of the main characters in a way that there's just no way like in if this if pet pet cemetery should be a tv show is what i'm saying if this was a tv show then we get like so many recurring themes around Rachel and her sister's history and how that connects to what's happening now. Instead, because it's a movie, we get, you know, the equivalent of about eight or nine minutes worth of conversation and scenes that are totally incomprehensible to the rest of the movie. Like, why is this happening? What is the connection? We don't know. Just more weirdness. Oh, okay. Now, climax of the movie. So I think, again, Hollywood decided this is what we want. And the book was like, well, then you're just going to have a shadow of what this could be. And and that's how I see it. Yeah. The time from when Gage gets hit by the semi to when Gage is, you know, reanimated, that whole sequence in between was so long. And they put all these plot points in there that made the movie boring. Right. Mm -hmm. From those two points, which are probably the two most important points of the movie, is just a whole bunch of really nothing. It's stuff that was probably in the book that they just were like, okay, we have, we need to fit all these things. So why don't we just fit it from between when Gage gets hit to when Gage comes back and we'll give each little subplot five to seven minutes yeah, that's and it. we're going to roll with it. And it mm-hmm. didn't work. It didn't work in this movie. And not resolve them, not resolve them yeah. at the end of the movie. Mm. Yeah, it was just, ways for people to experience other trauma like the the stuff with rachel and her sister which i think we should we moment we talk about right now because 
according to this movie, any time is a good time for like plot, <laughs> plots to be dropped in. But so we learn that like as as this grief is happening, uh, you know, Rachel tells this story to Lewis about how when she was eight, she had an older sister whose name was Zelda, who had spinal meningitis and was badly deformed. And, y- you know, she was left alone at home with her parents, just her and her sister. And Zelda started choking and she couldn't save her. And so basically Rachel watched her badly deformed sister die in front of her and it like fucked her up forever. And it was just like, okay, why is this a point in the movie? And then it only comes back to have her be tormented with the vision of the house when she goes back into Judd's house and she finds Gage, which again, there's really no evidence of like Gage being able to manifest visions or this spirit like being able to do spooky stuff like that. And it does. So it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. It does. It feels like it's from a different movie or like you, you said, Luke, it could have been a different episode of the show, like or pieced or paced out a little better. But how do we think of Zelda? Hmm. Zelda's annoying. She's always getting herself captured and stuff. Come on. <laughs> enough is enough. You okay? know, go no, save no. yourself. I like Zelda, but I really like Sheik and Ocarina of Time. <laughs> And Twilight Princess will always be golden in my heart, even though I understand there's something really magical about Majora's Mask. No, I, mm. I, I don't even have an opinion on this side quest of this movie because here's my hot take: Majora's Mask sucked. Come at me. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. I. It was seven and a half minutes of the movie that, if it had been cut out the movie would have been no worse and probably a little bit better. Yeah, because there's no reason we needed to see a vision that Rachel was seeing in the house. Like, as if seeing her reanimated son holding a scalpel and standing over a dead body isn't already scary enough. Like, we didn't need to see Zelda's spinal meningitis body, like, twisting and being like, I'm going to get you. (laughs) Like, it was just, yeah, it was excessive. But I did like all of the the scenes of Rachel getting home to Maine. And that was where we had Pascal, the buddy, who like just made sure everything worked out as well as could be. You know, she's she's running late to the, the flight and he he manages to like get the, the lady to keep the door open. He points out <laughs> that there's a rental car that she can have. You know, he's just like he's being a good dude. <laughs> Yeah, whenever I see scenes like that, I always like wonder what it's like to film them. Like it must be tricky when you have someone on like who only one character can see and all the other ones have to ignore. Like I wonder if that gets kind of weird for people when they're just talking and you have to ignore them or it's like you have to cuz it's really unnatural. I mean, I guess all of acting is kind of unnatural, but it's unnatural to just ignore a person who's right beside you and like pretend you can't see them. So I'm always like, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it's because I'm watching a lot of Lost and Hurley sees a lot of people who quote unquote aren't there. And so it's just right. all the time in that show. And so, you know, I was just like, oh, I wonder, it's just, especially one that's covered in that much fake blood, you know, would be like, I wonder how many takes they have to do <laughs> to get it right. <laughs> you know, we're like, no, you can't, you can't actually like, you know, flinch away from Pasco when he walks by. You have to pretend he's not there. And they're just like. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody yeah. needs a Pasco in their life. You know, I... someone someone to just yell bullshit in the air, but really help you out when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I think is I didn't I didn't feel like he wanted to be that helpful. Like, I still think like he's there to help. But then once they keep messing up, he's like, well, whatever. That's kind of what I wanted anyway. Uh, not because really. Because he... like right, right at the end. When he's carrying, when Luce is carrying Rachel to the the burial ground, 
He's like he's he he does his best best like Darth Vader impression and just like knows and like no. you know no and like disappears. So like he's yeah. invested in it. I just, don't know. It wasn't. I, I remained. Yeah. I remained unconvinced because of his humor. I think also his powers were ill defined as well because he was like okay he can kind of help. It doesn't seem like Rachel can talk to him, but she's aware of him. It definitely seems like nobody else is around him. Like, obviously, even on, <laughs> you know, as as little attention I pay I pay to the people around me on a plane, I would notice a guy with his brain out on the plane, especially if he was sitting by me. But like, you know, there's just scenes of him just like chilling in the aisle seat, like doot 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 doot, doot hello, and like, so he's there to help Rachel and he's there to guide her. But then he gets to a point where he's like, well. This is as far as I can get. Okay, you're on your own. It's like, why though? I don't understand. Like, what? Wh- wh- you were just able to get, like, there's like a, a Razius. The evil is maybe blocking him. I didn't get it. It was so weird. Yeah, he's got he's got a spiritual leash or something. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I guess. I guess. And then back to Judd in this in this point. Before, before we lose poor Judd. So spoiler, Judd does not make it to the end of this film. He's realizing what Lewis is up to. He's realizing that Lewis has gone to the the burial ground and is trying to resurrect his son. And he's like, it's up to you to stop it now. And then he sits down and has a cigarette and a couple beers and falls asleep in his chair. Yeah, like, he, he's old. Also, was that a ceremonial scalpel that Lewis had? Because I don't think doctors just have scalpels at their house. I don't know. I have a really nice case for one like kitchen knife I got that is in kind of a case like that. Yeah, but, but there's a kitchen in your house. Is there a is there a surgical room in in Lewis's house? Well, he had it in his little doctor bag, his little classic unfoldy doctor. Maybe he was like the rural doctor, and he needed to make house calls. Scalpel to go. Listeners, you can't really hear us right now, but me and Luke are giving Billy like the really look. You know? Okay. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Feeling very judged right now. But uh, you're no, feeling judged. very judged. <laughs> Hi, my name is Judd. We all made the same joke, and because of the delay, it all overlapped, so it's all getting cut. <laughs> no! 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 <laughs> oh, gosh. So we are, we're at the end of the movie. We have the, the haunted house part of the movie, because Stephen King loves a spooky house, right? And... What did we think about the whole part with Gage and his weird, evil, demonic, Chucky-like, you know, tour de force that he did at the end? Fine, (laughs) I guess. Like, okay, like this, obviously this is going to be the climax of the film. Like the entire movie has been set up to the point where, you know, Gage is the antagonist and he ends up, you know, fucking some shit up, which he clearly does. And, but like the setup to get there was not done well. So... We have to assume that Gage has got superpowers and like super strength yep. and super, I don't know. Yeah, I guess mostly super strength and super speed because even when he comes back, he's still a two-year-old, right? Like he's still this tiny little thing that it looks like Lewis could just kick, <laughs> right? Like how does he get the jump on all these adults? And so we assume, okay, whatever, he's reanimated and they have superpowers. But then if that's the case, how does he just burn? right? Like fire just destroys him too. Like he's got super strength and super speed, but he can still burn by fire. Maybe that's explained more in the lore, but also morphine just knocks out. Yeah. Knocks so you like, out like that. Like there's, I don't know. I just remember the one scene. 
I can't. I think it's. I think he's like trying to like strangle Lewis. Like he's on top mm. of him and his hands are on him. And I'm like, dude, he's fucking two. Just <laughs> like throw him. Yeah, like, he's, he's a very small he, person. He's like one twentieth your size. Yeah, and 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 we've seen evidence though that he's got super strength because he manages also to, you know, hang Rachel's body. Which like, okay, I guess he's able to to do that in the attic and. He's able to, you know, I like that he was, he was clever to take down Judd. You know, he does a thing where he cuts his Achilles and it's like, okay, this guy's now he can't, he can't run away. And then he slashes him across the mouth, which is really, really gross. And then he bites his neck out, which I'm also like, okay, zombie again. Like it just, it was a very vague supernatural being who, when he had the fight with his dad, I could really see that it was a dummy and it just like was very very obvious that he was just shaking a big doll around <laughs> yeah uh, which yeah, was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was, although i did really like at the end when he got injected he's just like ah no fair no yeah. fair. <laughs> dick move dad real dick move <laughs> i didn't write very many notes when i watched this movie so i have two lines of notes so my first oh, wow. one was when rachel goes upstairs in judd's house and finds judd's or and sees gage and my note that i wrote was is why is gage dressed up like a pimp like well because he had like this hat and like this like collared shirt and he was holding a cane he had the dress on from there was a very spooky painting in rachel's parents house that was dressed the same way big Uh. top hat big long green dress and a cane and there was a bunch of other weird paintings in their house that they kept cutting to and they kept having these really weird weird scenes when they were in rachel's house so obviously rachel's parents are terrible decorators well we can put that to bed that's 100 percent confirmed by this movie but again it was like why is she fanta- why is she hallucinating one her sister in this house and two her son who is a zombie or whatever but dressed up as a painting that's also in her parents house like it was just so strange, although he did look really good in that hat. I have to give it to him. <laughs> just Hollywood. Like, this movie was so... It was like every single producer in the world had to get their finger in on something that happened in this movie. And you could tell by the finished product. Yeah, it's <laughs> weird, though, because it was Stephen King that wrote the ad- like the, the script adaptation. So, like, he clearly had a say of, like, okay... By the oh, and Gage comes out wearing a top hat, <laughs> like he wrote that. He sure did. Yeah, and I think that there's obviously some of what Stephen King writes about that is just in. This is obvious, intended for a different medium of exchange, like literature, not the visual medium of movies. So, like until recently, it would have been hard to make a compelling looking Pennywise or, or you know, just like the, the CGI now, I think it'd be interesting to watch the new Pet Cemetery because even the animals, I was like, mm, this is not like, the way you would imagine in a book, Stephen King describing how church and spot would have looked was, would, I guarantee you this, would have been way better than they actually looked in the movie, right? They just yeah. looked like, spot looks like a dog that you would find in a junkyard or something like, like he'd been in a fight, he's bloodied up and he's angry. That's all. Whereas I imagine if you read this book, you're like, Whoa, I I just, I bet you the imagery would have been a lot more powerful 
in a novel than when you have to make it visual, right? So, yeah, church kind of looked like when I pet Cat John Snow backwards on purpose just to like screw up his fur. Like that's what zombie church. I'm gonna call them zombies because that's the closest thing I can can talk about it. But uh, you know, when when zombie church is back, he's just like pet backwards and i mean i get it that's that's gonna make any cat really angry so <laughs> no wonder he was pissed off at lewis because lewis kept petting him the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know we haven't talked about him much what did you think about lewis in this movie because i found him pretty uncompelling i he... kept thinking he was in sorry alex i kept thinking he was he was kind of like a 90s heartthrob wannabe like he looked mm, like he would yeah. be the doctor who guests on er for a couple seasons and is a love interest or he'd be like a handsome you know man in a in a hallmark christmas movie like he was he was very much that type of actor and i kept yeah, yeah, wanting yeah. i was like is this like a a young paul rudd type or you know a beverly hills 90210 like just like this sort of teen heartthrob that kind of has grown up a little bit and i couldn't like yeah. i looked his imdb up and i couldn't really pick out what he was in but he was just this like he had a pretty face but not much else going on i kept trying to place him as well and i feel the same like i was like i recognize you but i don't think i do actually yeah you just look like a kind of cute white dude with brown hair <laughs> alex what do you what did you think of lewis lewis as a character was thematically a very cool character lots to talk about just executed poorly whether that be the dialogue or just the way the movie's edited. But in terms of him as a character, I found it was really interesting because he's he's a doctor, right? So he he obviously deals a lot with life and death. And then he has his this daughter, young daughter, who is being introduced to the fact of life and death. And he still, he wants her, it seems like he wants her to be prepared for the world, but still maintain a bit of innocence. So he's, he's like when she asks like what happens when people die, he, he sits her down and he's, he's a very... Like, it's a great dad moment where he talks with her straight up about, you know, like, people believe different things. Some people believe you go to heaven. Some people believe you come back as a child. Other people people think you just go on or whatever. And then she asks, what do you believe in? And I thought that scene was really sweet in, in like, a father-daughter kind of interaction and teaching about, like, a really serious and sometimes dark subject about death. And I think his the progression of his character is really interesting because... He goes because he's he's dealt so much tragedy in this story that he's willing to do irrational things like he knows that based off of everything Judd's told him and based off of what he sees from church, he's still willing to, you know, bury, bury Gage in the burial ground, bury mm -hmm. his wife, Rachel, in the burial ground. He's willing to do these things that are really irrational and he knows the consequences of them, but he wants to do it anyway because he wants them back. Right. So it's 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 a character with a lot of conflicting emotions about, you know, how do, how am I going to be a good father? How how like I have these beliefs on life and death. But when suddenly this supernatural thing is introduced to me and all I've known my entire life about life and death has flipped upside down. How am I going to process this new information? What am I going to do with this new information when, you know, people close and personal to me die and yeah, super, super interesting, compelling character to look at and to study. Mm -hmm. But the movie just didn't do him justice. Mm. Yeah. Right? And this movie is very much in this way like the Star Wars prequels, where the story <laughs> is interesting and there's like really cool lore and potential garden paths of storytelling to go off. 
and all of that is lost and ruined because it's just a completely poorly executed film. Not good acting, not very good dialogue, not very good decision making, weird looking sets even, and like, and a, a we, bad editing. So the execution, like this movie as executed as a film is so poor that it really rips you out of all of the good parts very, very jarringly and in a way that, I mean, I'm reminded of uh, a quote from Richard Dawkins where he said, a good argument made poorly is a bad argument. And so a good story... No, you're story, a dumb, dumb face. <laughs> yeah. Yep. A, good, there it is. a good movie or a good story made poorly unfortunately ends up kind of being a bad story just because of the way the human mind works, you know? And that's what I was thinking about. It's like the way, yeah, like, like all those points you made about Lewis, Alex, are true. There are true. And yet he just felt like a clown still, right? Like that's like, that doesn't help this movie in any way. And I actually call it the way he was at the end where like, as soon as he kills Gage, he's like, well, you know what? Maybe it'll be different with Rachel. Let's take Rachel to the graveyard. I was like, okay, this is Tobias Funke logic at its best. Hey dad, what are we, what are you and mom doing? Well, we're going to have an open marriage. Oh, dad, do these open marriages work for couples? <laughs> no, 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 no. Somehow no these people delude themselves into thinking it'll work. But it might work for us. <laughs> like, exactly. Just that di- dissonance on a dime, the Tobias Funke approach. <laughs> oh, Tobias, you blow hard. <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted to, like, augment your point, Alex, is like, yeah, you're right. Those are such interesting things about Lewis, but I didn't notice because he was bumbling and stupid and annoying. Yeah, I I think the portrait of a man facing grief and the loss of a child and the like desire to go back and do anything to get him back. And if you had the option, would you do it? Even if you knew the consequences, like it's all really interesting. But Lewis, just even the way he like, acted and he spoke and he delivered his lines he kind of sounded like he was sleepy and a little bit like zoned out or not paying too much attention and you're right it just bumbled along until the end he made the same mistake over and over again and even after you know he's had to burn another house down so another house doesn't make it to the end of a horror movie he's like yeah i'm gonna go for three you know at third time's the charm that's what they say at least I'll try. You know, I feel like he was like, I'll try for three because we've tried, you know, three times is enough to try it. And then I'll then I'll make a decision. And then he just goes home and waits for Rachel to come home and then possibly kill him or possibly not. And it's just like, what? Was he being karmically, was this a, a karmic redressing of his like sins? And he was, you know, being taken out by the things that he loved because he had gone too far and the universe was correcting it. Like he didn't seem like, to be freaked out that his wife came back from the dead with half of her face missing, like Two-Face style from The Dark Knight, and then he just has a quick makeout with her. Just, why? You know what I think this movie was missing, though? So you know how he, like, he wakes up the morning after he buries Gage, and he knows, like, like, he knows, like, Gage is gonna not, is gonna come back and, like, wreak havoc, because he looks across the street and he sees, like, Judd's house, and even before he gets any evidence, he's, like, he's setting up his needles and, like, putting on his gloves and all that stuff. Like, I think this movie was missing, like, a John Wick-esque 
montage of him getting getting his weapons ready like you know how in john wick he's like he's breaking in his basement he's taking out his guns he's filling up his like ammo and like cleaning everything this one it was it, it needed him to open up his doctor bag and like pull out three different needles and start drawing liquid out of vials and stuff it needed that that's what would have made this movie better yeah we needed a montage just like team america montage you're gonna need a montage (laughs) yeah so this was the second note second and last note that i wrote was okay when he goes up to judd's house and he sees church he puts on like the latex gloves and i wrote now he wears gloves (laughs) so the whole time he at the start of the movie when he's on the operating table with pascal do they not have universal precautions back in 89 like where are your gloves Where's your, you know, like, this is all biohazardous waste. Oh, you found Church's dead body. Like, you're just going to peel it off the frost and pick it up with your bare hands and stuff. Like, come on, there's diseases and stuff. But now when you're about to go on a murder spree, or is it a murder spree when you're killing reanimated things? I I bet there's a legal loophole, right? (laughs) Well, you're on. But his dead may never die. Isn't that (laughs) what they say? (laughs) Yeah. But it's like, now he puts on the glove. Like, what are those gloves for? Do you not want to get your hands dirty now? Like, I don't get it. How do you kill one that has no life? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, Team America, that Team America reference, this movie could have used a Gary, a.k.a. an actor. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good reference. I mean, Fred Gwynn came close, but there were still like... I think for for being child actors, I think Ellie and Gage both did a really good job. Sure, like Ellie was precocious and questioning, and only like a tiny bit annoying. But I think she delivered her lines as as good as she can. It was like the the parents that were just like oh, and the other yeah. adults. Like was the it other adults? Yeah, Rachel's dad that just starts fighting Lewis at the funeral. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he just cold cocks <laughs> him at the casket. It's like, dude, read the room. This is not the time for this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Also, what kind of a doctor is Lewis? You know, do you remember that scene where Rachel is telling him about her past with Zelda and all that stuff? And then he goes, like, I understand. I'm going to get you some Vicodin. And she's like, I don't don't take that anymore. And she's like, and he goes, tonight you do. (laughs) Like, what? You're going to have a Valium tonight. Uh, That's right. Yeah, Valium. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Like, this movie just disjointed. Not great. Not great. No. And then at the end, he dies. I'm calling it that he dies at the end. I know we don't see it, but, you know, Rachel comes back. They make out. He, she picks up a knife. And then we hear, <laughs> I had subtitles on, and you just hear, arg. And then <laughs> the Ramon song starts playing. <laughs> yeah. That Ramon I mean, song probably was the best part of the movie. Mm-hmm. It would have been hard to blame that death on Rachel. Like, that's all Lewis's fault, even if she stabs him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah, he's a master of his own downfall, for sure. Like, his grief and his... He's not thinking, he's not being rational. He he basically destroys everything he loves. And, you know, we never know what happens to Ellie. I guess she just gets raised by her grandparents in this weirdo house. And has weirdo dreams, maybe. But Yeah, it's like, he just... What's that quote? Insanity is trying the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Definition of insanity. Yeah. And everyone's like, no. And we we all turned into Pascal at the end when he's got Rachel's body. And we're like, no, you can't do it. And he's like, no, 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 no. We're going for a third try. We're going to try it three times. 
I'm going to mess with this power I don't know anything about and just like hope for a different result. And it isn't. But is there anything else you want to talk about this movie? Anything else you want to mention before we we shuffle off into the, the end of the episode? I am glad I watched it. I've never read a Stephen King book, but I've seen now. Like, I feel like I'm getting a large chunk of culture now by being exposed to Stephen King stories, obviously with it and now pet cemetery and you know and I've carrie seen sh- too carrie, carrie yeah and i've seen the shining and i read a wikipedia po- plot synopsis on the stand i i, I feel like I, i'm more cultured now that i know these things so as disappointed as i am in this movie i am glad i did watch it so i know the story agreed Alex, if you want a very thorough synopsis and analysis of The Stand, feel free to listen to episode 62 of Really True Fiction, The Stand, with guest Billy Schultz. Wow. Maybe I'll check that out after. (laughs) Good plug. Good plug. Thanks. I liked how the Pet Cemetery looked. I thought that looked pretty cool. Mm, Yeah. And another thing I liked about this movie, and actually after watching it, the thing I like the most about it is that it came out in the same year as our friend Mark. So happy birthday, Mark. (laughs) That's really why we're doing it. So, you know, we've got this lock without saying it. So my favorite part about Pet Cemetery is that it reminds me of my friend Mark. The fact that you're using the term come out to refer to somebody's birth is hilarious to me. (laughs) The escape from the vaginal canal. Yes. I'll I'll be as literal as possible. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so happy birthday, Mark. I hope you liked your birthday episode of Nothing to Fear. <laughs> would you would you say there was a scariest part? Was there a scariest part for either of you? Because I do have a couple. I had a startlingly list part, or most startlingly list part. I can't even say that word because that's not a word, but... You did it. I think <laughs> because half of this movie was, like, I wasn't even watching because it was so boring. I was on my phone. So there were a couple times when there was, like, a quick scene change and like piano keys come in sudden and you hear church meow all out of nowhere you know it's just startling when you step on a cat's tail and they make a loud noise that they weren't making before so yeah there were there were, i think it was like two yeah. times where church meowed angrily and i was like whoa oh, oh yeah there's still a movie on that i should be watching <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your dedication to this show luke <laughs> hey for you billy some things I'll go second because I also thought that church was the scariest part of this movie. Just and and being a cat owner myself, I'm sure Alex, you can attest to this. If your cat is somewhere where you don't expect him to be, and then they like jumps out at you or like wants to play, it is very startling. And it was just like, ah, damn it, church, what are you doing? Like hiding down here and hissing. And, you know, I just, yeah, I I jumped a lot at the, the cat scenes. What about you, Alex? Spot them. Besides the truck scene with Gage, probably when Lewis is taking a bath and <laughs> Church throws like a dead rat into his bath. I hate rats. They're so gross to me. And especially a dead rat. And then like, oh, he picks it up and oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. That is, What's your opinion on Splinter? Like I, to- I told you, my favorite character is Michelangelo. Yeah. No, not Michelangelo. What? I told you, my favorite character is Donatello. Cut that I'm out. I'm leaving both in. I'm leaving no, both in. Cut that out. It's Donatello. Alex's favorite character is Raphael. <laughs> Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo. Just choose one. Leonardo. So I'm guessing, Alex, you don't want to rate this out of bathtub rats then. So why don't you tell us what we're rating it out of this week? <laughs> 
So one one thing I also noticed about the semi trucks is that probably based on the budget, they had the same semi truck every single time. Sure. Whether it's the same from the same company or it's the same truck that goes speeding down the road. It was a fleet. Two times, like multiple times a day. It was the same color and it was the same dirtiness. Mm. Like it was always clean. So why don't we rate this out of consistent semi-trucks? Consistent semi-trucks, sure. I love it. Out of five consistent semi-trucks, what are you giving this one, Alex? Yeah, I didn't hate this movie, but I didn't really like it either. I think there's interesting themes. It just wasn't executed well. But I am glad I watched it, so I'm going to give this two consistent semi-trucks out of five. Nice. I will follow you down the road with my own two consistent semi-trucks out of five because this one, for me, was a solid two out of five movie. Like, it was enjoyable enough. The themes were interesting. I wish it had been better explored. And honestly, Fred Gwynn's Manor accent brought it up by probably, like, a whole point. Just because he was just like, oh, yep, that's really spooky. <laughs> like, I just love, I was just like, I could listen to you talk all day long, mister. Go for it. But what are you giving it, Luke? Felt like this movie, everyone who made this movie were like, you know what? This is a slam dunk, so we don't even have to try. And it shows. <laughs> it's kind of like the moment where it's like, oh, Stephen King, movie adaptation, Fred Gwynn, Monsters. This is in a bag. This it's is all in a hits. bag. Yeah. You know, on paper, this is a great movie. Well, they say in sports, that's why you play the game, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's why you make the movie good or well. And who whoever made this movie missed that memo. So mm. it was just, it was, it was painfully boring for me, this movie. And so mm. I'm going to have to say 1.5 out of 5 consistent semi-trucks on my hand. All righty. Yeah, and I feel like we would all probably not watch this version again, but would you would either of you watch the other the other versions of Pet Se- or the other version the remake in 2019 or the sequel Pet Cemetery 2? If you didn't have to do it for the podcast eventually cuz I make you, but would you watch this on your own? <laughs> probably not. I know the story now. I'm not really that interested past that. I would watch the 2019 version probably for two reasons, one being John Lithgow plays. Mm the uh, Judd character, which I think would be hilarious. And also just like, I'd want to compare and contrast script, acting, tone, tension, editing, and music from the 1989 to the 2019 version. Because again, as any consistent listener of this podcast knows, is that I just, I don't like cheesy dialogue, cheesy script, Mm. bad acting. I just don't like it. And so when more modern movies pay attention to the fact that audiences don't like bad acting, they ask their actors to do a good job. And so Mm. I think that that's more of a modern phenomenon for horror movies. It'd be interesting to see what a 2019 version of this. So yeah, I'd watch that one for compare and contrast purposes more than entertainment. Nice. Yeah, I I wouldn't watch Pet Cemetery again. I'll watch the other ones when we get around to them. But if it was up to me, I would be like, yeah, I've seen it. I know kind of what it's about. And I'm fine with that. Like, I'm not really feeling like I'm missing out too much if I if I didn't watch them. But it would be it would be fun to to compare and contrast. You're right. Other fun things are cheering. And we're going to do that. We're going to we're going to have a cheer. And I might as well I might as well go first because we, we tease it enough <laughs> by accident talking about Zelda. But it is <laughs> it's actually a, a series of tweets that I found a couple months ago where there's and I don't remember the handle, which uh, makes me feel bad because I would love to shout her out. But it's just this girl 
she has a gamer account and occasionally she will poke the internet bear by releasing a tweet that just said Zelda was the boy. And I just like reading some of the, the responses to any time she's just like, oh yeah, Princess, uh, yeah, The Legend of Zelda. You play as Zelda. Zelda is the boy. And just like people getting so apoplectically mad and having like nerd rage about it is just like something that just warms, warmed my heart when I found it. And so go look on Twitter for Zelda is the boy and I guarantee you'll have fun time. <laughs> I remember some professor I like once saying the reason that academic disagreements are so vicious is that the stakes are so low. And I, <laughs> yeah. I think you could say the same about nerd culture. Oh, absolutely. There is no hotter, like more fueled rage than like fucking nerds arguing about dumb shit on the internet. <laughs> yeah, did, did Greedo shoot first? <laughs> ah. <laughs> no, but he did say McClunky. <laughs> Luke, what are you cheering? I've been thinking about this, and I'm going to cheer the fact that as of this recording now, I have been able to carve out a time and space and book for both Billy and Alex to be guests on Really True Fiction. We recorded... We recorded this week Prisoner of Azkaban with Alex, and it came out yesterday, as of this recording yesterday. And so episodes 62 and 71 of Really True Fiction feature <laughs> all of my co-hosts of Nothing to Fear. And yeah. I don't know, for some reason, that feel well, it's not surprising. It feels special to me, but also kind of appropriate and a long time in coming, but also just really satisfying. I don't know, for like the last couple of weeks, I've been really reflecting a lot on really true fiction and like, it hasn't been in my life that long, but it's been mm. in long enough now where I can actually reflect on it a little bit. And it really feels to me like the next stage of its growth and evolution is guests. And I feel quite honored that the first two were the two of you. So that, that's my chair is the stand and prisoner of azkaban are and and i would say like and, and i mean this objectively not just nice i would never dream of just saying this to be nice to the two of you i put i i think they're both such high quality i think they're both in the top 10 really true fiction episodes that we've done so uh-huh. i really want to thank you for that but also just kind of bask in it a little bit and and be appreciative steve holt <laughs> yes top 10 <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome and i love that listening back to our past few episodes there's a couple weeks where it's like well maybe by this point the prisoner of azkaban episode will come out and the fact that the long awaited the long teased prisoner of azkaban episode is out yay (laughs) i hope i believe the kids call it edging (laughs) (laughs) well we finally got release alex what are you cheering (laughs) yeah i'm cheering the release (laughs) (laughs) come again come again (laughs) <laughs> okay okay my real cheer was today i before before recording this episode i had a chiropractor appointment Ooh, and yeah. i'm cheering that because i actually went to my best friend's clinic and he was the doctor that did my appointment and Ooh. i've known him for very very long and kind of like I know I've, we've known each other since we were probably six or seven. Just seeing him grow up now to be an official doctor and having him treat me. And, you know, there like when he was doing his, you know, little little arm and bone bends and, you know, cracking my back and all that stuff. I, I did have brief flashbacks to when he, you know, were play fighting as kids and he would <laughs> sit on me. But yeah, that's my cheer is, you know, like being able to see 
you know, the kind of person that my friend grew up to be. And I'm very proud that he is a chiropractic doctor and being able to see him was like as a, as a patient was a very special experience. Oh, I love that. That's great. Well, hooray for, for chiropractic. It's a long maligned profession, but I remember when I was getting regular adjustments, I felt so good. And I hope... doesn't seem that hard. All you have to do is fall in a garbage can. Ah, yes. The spinal cylinder. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, I could tell today you were really well adjusted. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody, posture check. Come on. There we go. Yeah, posture check. Sit up straight. But yeah, that'll bring us to the end of another episode of Nothing to Fear. Thank you all for listening. If you want to support the show, please leave us a rating and review in iTunes. A five-star rating and a little bit of a review helps us go up in the charts and helps more people discover the show. It's been really fun to interact with people on through the Instagram, which I'll plug in a minute, but having people like send, send messages and send DMs and saying they like the episodes. And today I was at the Apple store and I was just sort of chatting while I was waiting for my, my stuff to come through. And a guy was like, what are you doing later? I was like, Oh, I'm going to record an episode of my podcast. And he was like, what? You have a podcast? What's it called? And so I got to like plug it real life and be like, oh yeah, it's nothing to fear. It's about horror movies. And he was like, oh my God, I love horror movies. And I was like, well, you should, you should listen to it. So, you know, <laughs> it's just nice having a thing to talk about. Like, you know, when you do group exercises where it's like, name one interesting thing about you. I feel like having your own podcast is something that is a real good lock for, for one of those getting to know you things. And so anyway, I'm really, I'm really loving the the community that's forming and the people that are, you know, reaching out to us. And I've actually started, should be underway by now, Danica, but you and I agreed to be accountability buddies and run 2021 kilometers in 2021. So this wouldn't have happened if we didn't have a podcast. I mean, I might've met you through Luke in another way, but uh, it's been really nice to sort of form those connections. <laughs> so thank you. And anyway, leave us a rating. And it's cool. I just wanted to say, I had a thought, Billy, when you were talking about podcasts. Like, it's cool because podcasts are now something that basically everybody knows about, knows that exists, and probably listens to one or two themselves. But still, it's kind of like not something everybody does. So mm -hmm. it's like that kind of cool part of the growth of a piece, of a media form that I feel that we came in, in 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 good timing in also. You know, like obviously it would have been better to start have a if your podcast started in 2015 or 2016, yeah, it's probably way better now, but you know, just even still like having it out there at this stage cuz I think they're only going to get more popular. Yeah. I I love it. And we would love to keep growing the show, so please do leave us those ratings and those reviews. And if you have it in you, please support us by buying some merch for the store. We've got a couple designs up on our Nothing to Fear Tea Public store. We are working on another storefront at the current time of recording. It may or may not be up by the time this episode comes out. If it is, there'll be a sting at the very end where I come back in and tell you all about it. But if you want to buy a shirt or a coffee mug or something, Tea Public is a great place to do it. And we get a little bit of that money and it helps us. We're going to put it into you know, software and microphones and renting movies and, and keeping it going. So please, please consider that. And you can check our Instagram page for details of where that is. We are, of course, Nothing to Fear podcast on Instagram. We are Nothing to Fear P1 on Twitter. And you can send us an email anytime you want. Nothing to Fear podcast at gmail.com. You can also chat to me on Instagram if you want to talk to me directly. My handle is Billy by Design. I before E when spelling Billy, and there are underscores between the words. 
And Luke, where can people find more of you and interact with you if they want? Just really true fiction on all major podcasting apps. There's also a Facebook group. If you wanna, if you like it, you can get notifications there. And really true fiction at gmail.com. And check out episode 62, the civilizational impulse, aka the stand, or episode 71, a Patronus chorus, aka Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. If you want to hear more of the wonderful mellifluous and euphonious dulcet tones of the voices of wow. both billy schultz and alex Wan. dibs on mellifluous yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, that's where the other podcast that i do is and thanks for again just thanks for both of you taking the time and it'll definitely have to happen again love to and alex where can people interact with you if they want to you know here or there you're there <laughs> you're a mystery you're an enigma you're on the wind but we can hear you on this podcast every week, which is great. And on Luke's podcast, here or there. I made that joke when we were recording with Alex. Where can people find you, Alex? And he'd be like, literally right here on this episode <laughs> of Really True Fiction. <laughs> literally right here. And it's like, it's a joke that only the crossover audience will get, which is probably <laughs> not a ton of people. So, But growing all the time. So thank you, though, Alex, for writing the music for the Nothing to Fear show and the, the little variations we've had. We got a lot of good feedback about the like updated version you did that I've been using in a couple of the, the more recent episodes. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Thank you to Katie Rogers for designing our logo and all the like episode artwork that she's been doing for us lately. You can follow her on put underscore that down. She's also helping me set up the, the shop and the store. So it's really great to, to get to work with you, Katie. And and thank you everyone for listening next week we're going to be continuing our birthday month with the horror movie that came out in the year of alex's birth we're going to be watching leprechaun that's right leprechaun a horror movie about a leprechaun i can't imagine it'll be good <laughs> although it is warwick davis so <sighs> yeah the star wars references should be a little easier ah <laughs> uh, yeah we're gonna see that ewok i would be lying if i said i could wait Oh, I can't wait. I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying. It's going to be an interesting I can't one. wait. I can't wait. Whatever. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. It is Jennifer Aniston, though. So. Ooh, there you go. That's good. Well, I will say goodbye to both of you. Goodbye, Luke. Adios. Goodbye, Alex. See ya. And goodbye, everybody. Remember, there are just movies. There's nothing to fear. Okay, here we go, everybody. Here we go, everybody. Why? How many times is Billy going to say, here we go, until Luke stops? <laughs> I feel like Luke might still be lagging a lot and he's not intentionally interrupting or maybe he is, but we'll see. I think I might be lagging a lot. I'm not trying to interrupt, but I'm doing it anyway. (laughs)